Hey, podcast listeners, CSIS, Canada's spy agency, says foreign states are targeting Canadians through our social media accounts. The general public is losing trust in institutions like the media. Preston Manning says that politicians should call the shots in health crises. Vaccination rates are way down. Many people simply don't know who they can trust. We get into it all with Professor Timothy Caulfield. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We got a lot of ground to cover in this episode of Real Talk, and we're grateful that you're with us. Professor Timothy Caulfield joining us in studio. We're going to get into that Manning report. Uh, you know that, the COVID review, the government review essentially commissioned by the Danielle Smith government tapping on the shoulder, the founder of the Reform Party, you know, the godfather of conservative politics in Western Canada, unless Stephen Harper deserves the title, or maybe Tom Flanagan, I don't know. Maybe we'll ask Tim Caulfield in just a second, but, but a, bit of a, a bit of a gaffe, an embarrassing gaffe by Manning yesterday. You may have seen this, and the plot thickens. Not only is the panel review out, 90 recommendations on how Alberta as a jurisdiction should handle something like COVID in future, but an email sent by Preston to conservative loyalists and accidentally, you would assume, the liberal MP down in Calgary, George Chahal, the lonely George Chahal, the former city councillor who, of course, is representing a government that's polling very unfavorably in Alberta, but he was handed on a silver platter yesterday some inside baseball commentary by Manning himself on the motivation behind the report and, and how Preston, former leader of the federal official opposition, obviously, believes that the data, the findings can be weaponized against the NDP in Alberta and, of course, that liberal NDP coalition government federally. We're going to talk to Professor Caulfield about restoring faith in media. I want to get into vaccines and a whole lot more. But first, this episode of Real Talk is aimed right at those of you that are looking for a rewarding and high-paying career, but you don't have a university degree right now. Hey, it's not the end of the world. You can get started today as an insurance professional with Business Career College. You know, in Canada, insurance agents are typically starting around fifty-five grand a year, and they're soon earning around ninety thousand annually. And all you you need to do is take an approved course and then pass your licensing exam. Business Career College offers industry-leading approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance, plus their expert instructors are passionate about helping you launch your new career. They want to see you succeed. Right now, a great deal for real talkers. Save 15% off any BCC insurance course with the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK at businesscareercollege.com. You've heard him or you've seen him here before talking about myth-busting, talking about health law and science policy. That's his wheelhouse at the University of Alberta. He's also been a Netflix TV host. He's the author of several best-selling books, and he might be the most trolled person on Alberta Twitter. Is that a fair assessment? I don't know if I'm the most. Let's put me in the Venn diagram of likely, likely the most. I honestly think, and as somebody who used to think that I got trolled a lot, and then I've seen other people get trolled quite a bit. Daniel Smith gets trolled a lot. Rachel Notley gets trolled a lot. I don't think anybody even comes close 
to you. You bring people out of the woodwork from all around the world, and that's not always a good thing. I, I'm I honored, honored that you, <laughs> you think of me that way. It, it is brutal, and I will say it's changed. It wasn't always, you know, you've been on social media on various platforms. Years and years. And, and I used to I used to be about, I'm going to say 10% of what I got was nasty trolling harassment. I think, you know, if I post something, and I can, I know what's coming, too. I know what's coming. I post something. I would say 90% of, of, of the responses are, are, it's harassment, death threats. Um, it's just, it's nasty out there now. For people that are listening to this on the podcast, that'll be the majority. They can't tell that you have a gleam in your eye and you're smiling when you're talking about how nasty it is and the death threats that you're getting. But I imagine that there's an element of seriousness to that. Let me tell you anecdotally, just yesterday, and, and I appreciate this, you were letting people know uh, that you were going to be joining me on the show. You know, you tweet about how the information ecosystem is shown to be wrong or legitimized, given a huge profile. You share a link to a piece you've written that we'll get into. And then you tag me in the tweet. You say, I'm going to be on with Jespo in the morning. And then all of a sudden, my mentions just become this hot garbage fire. <laughs> and uh, it just it just reiterated to me that that the field of what you do, which is telling the truth based on evidence based policy findings, research, et cetera, isn't always an easy road to hoe. And maybe now a little bit more difficult than ever before. Everybody's got a big voice and everybody's using it. Yeah, it is really unfortunate because, you know, someone like me, you know, I'm old, you know, I'm going to be out to pasture soon, right? And then you have, but I worry about what this environment does to those young, diverse voices that are coming up. We need these voices in the conversation. So uh -huh. young academics, young policy people, young clinicians, and they don't want to get out there and engage in conversation. So, yeah, we can, you know, I can laugh about it, but I, I think it is, a, it is a real problem how toxic it has become out there. Uh, and, and you end up sort of, chill, you know, you, you edit yourself, right? You go, ah, do I really need to post, post this? And do I really need the hate, the emails, the complaints to my university, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is terrible. It's terrible. But it's also like you want to share the information that, that you're gleaning. You want to share the thoughts that you have. You want to be a good source of information and kind of play in the space where a lot of the misinformation is happening, right? So it's a bit of a catch-22. you got to be there if you want to make an impact, but by being there, you open yourself up to a bunch of stuff. Exactly right. And, and so, you know, I've, I've actually, you know, written about this. You know, I think institutions, so, you know, government, uh, uh, universities, research institutions, they've got to support their colleagues that, that want to get out there and, and do their best to, to represent what the science actually says in, in a field. And also professional organizations, I think, need to do that. And, and I think we're, you know, Ryan, I think we're starting to see that shift. You know, I think people are recognizing how important it is to engage the, the public in a respectful manner and really try to repre represent the science accurately. I saw that uh, on Twitter yesterday, or a few days ago anyway, you had shared Elizabeth Thompson's piece for CBC where sh uh, she's reporting on foreign states targeting Canadians through social media, warning from Canada's spy agency, basically, from CSIS. This is a thing. You know, we're not immune to it. Everybody talks about Russian interference, uh, Chinese interference in American elections, alleged and otherwise. Uh, but but here it is right here in Canada. Uh, that's right. And I think that a, a lot of people don't recognize the impact that state actors are having on our public discourse. We know, for example, that state actors, so, you know, Russia, China, are impacting how Canadians are talking about vaccines, climate change, ivermectin. You know, there have been studies that have shown that they are just trying to create information chaos in, in Canada. And Ryan, they're succeeding. They're succeeding. You know, people are, are buying into these narratives that, that are being introduced by, by state actors. And of course, now what's going on in the Middle East is just ramped up even, even more. So yeah, this is, you know, 
I really think the spread of misinformation, and there's, again, research to back this up, is one of the most pressing issues of our time, not just in my space, you know, the health space, but really when you're talking about democracy. What's the motivation? Like, maybe I'm about to hit the nail on the head, or maybe there's so much more to it, but in creating information chaos, is it simply to destabilize? Like, what's the end game, do you think? Well, I think it's going to touch on something we're going to explore together. You know, absolutely, just creating information chaos is an advantage for, for, you know, state actors, right? Because it it, it makes our society more inefficient, right? It makes it more difficult to explore topics. Just think about something like ivermectin. We know ivermectin, that anti-parasitic that, that Yes, it won the Nobel Prize. Yes, it's a very effective uh, antiparasitic. Yes, it's used in uh, all, o- all over the world for that purpose. There's never been any evidence to suggest that it's effective in COVID. But still, you know, a huge percentage of the Canadian population believes that. That's because of misinformation. But think about all the research that has been done, Ryan, on ivermectin, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that have been spent all over the world kind of to disprove a myth. Right. This drug was investigated. It was found not to be effective. But the research continues because it's almost like we have to continue to. That's a win for state actors. Right. Because we're wasting resources. We're wasting public discussion uh, on on this topic. But the other reason, the other reason that state actors want to do this, and this is so relevant to what we're going to talk about today, they want to create distrust. They want to create distrust in institutions. They want to get Canadians to distrust institutions because that is a win for uh, other countries and it's, it harms liberal democracies like Canada. It's working, right? It's working. Like it's you, working. You know, oh, my God, is it working? There, there's polling to suggest. There's research. We've talked about it on the show lots about how distrust right now in institutions, and it's not just the media, but the media is there, but also education and, and, and you could almost say institutions with a capital I and leave it like that. A hundred percent. In fact, there was a study that came out of the United States, I'm going to say last week or the week before. Listen to this. Uh, trust in science and scientists is the lowest it has been in like 30, 40 years, right? Uh, and only 57% of Americans now say that science has benefited them. Like, which is absurd. They're probably tweeting about it, right? You know, they're probably sitting on an airplane 30,000 feet above the sky, you know, the ground, tweeting about it. And science hasn't benefited them at all, right? Mm. As they're taking their their medication for their heart problems or, you know. Drinking pasteurized uh, milk uh, or eating GMO food or whatever, whatever. Yeah, which is, that is fully the result of of uh, the spread of misinformation and the and the creation of distrust. And we know that because if you look at the cohort of the population that where you see the biggest change in distrust, it's, you know, among a particular political leaning community, right? And I want to be really, really clear here. Uh, institutions, universities, um, uh, clinical uh, institutions need to do better. There are reasons why people, valid reasons why there, there could be distrust, right? And um, people often point to those reasons and, and blame institutions for the distrust. And, but, but, and I, I understand that. In fact, my next book, forthcoming book, really explores the way that institutions have screwed up. So huh. I'm fully aware of that. But, but, but if you look at the research, the majority of the distrust has been generated by the spread of misinformation, the embrace of ideology around distrust 
Um, and that has fueled where we are today. And it seems to be like a general premise that they are trying to control us. They are trying to mislead us. They want us to believe that this will work, but this won't work to fight COVID or this is proper or this is improper policy, right? It's all about they, the big bad government, again, back to institutions. There's kind of a paranoia that maybe was always around. I don't know, maybe a pandemic ramped it up. And I, and I almost don't make light of that because if you look at the mental health impacts of, of, a, of a three plus year pandemic, they are significant and they are real. And we've seen it have an impact. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we live in a more polarized society. I think, you know, social media has fueled that. The, Would you the, agree more paranoid as well? I, I think it's more it's it's more paranoid in the sense that the paranoia has been exploited ah. now. Do you know what I mean? So it, social media algorithms exploit that paranoia. Right. Um, uh, ideological institutions are now exploiting that paranoia and it's creating it's cr- creating more more division. And I think it's really, you know, it's going to sound like I'm picking on a side of the ideological, you know, continuum. Um, and, but we're talking about this cultural moment, because if you go back to like 1975, Ryan, it was the exact opposite, right? We just came out of Vietnam War, Watergate, Agent Orange, right? And at that moment, that cultural moment, it was the left, the Democrats that were more suspicious of science and the Republicans that embraced science, right? Go to today, and we have an exact an exact flip, right? And so, you know, it's this in this cultural moment, in this ideological moment. Yes, a lot of this is coming from the right, but it wasn't always that way. Mm. If I could give you one really good example, one of my favorite examples of 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 this flip, Marin County. You know, Marin County and outside of San Francisco. Okay. Yeah, you know, gorgeous place. One of my good friends, Jen Gunter, Doctor Jen Gunter, yeah. lives there, so I've been there many times, and it's she's brilliant. And and, and you know, Marin County is is incredibly democratic, incredibly wealthy, incredibly educated, right? So you go to before the pandemic, it was one of the least vaccinated places in the United States, hmm. right? Um, so, you know, you think new agey, you know, yoga, going to Whole Foods, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of vibe, right? Sure. The pandemic happens, Ryan, right? And being anti-vax becomes an ideological flag for the Republicans. And what happens? The Marin County flip. Marin County, Presto, becomes one of the most vaccinated places in the United States because it's all about signaling, right? All about, I'm not, a, I'm, my God, I'm not a Republican, I'm a Democrat, so now I'm vaccinated. And these are smart, educated people who made that flip, right? So it just shows you the degree to which this is about you know, signaling, in-group signaling, ideology, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I want to come back to, to storytelling and, and both sidesism and saving news and the information ecosystem, all that you've talked about. You, you wrote a book, you wrote the book, uh, the vaccine, uh, you, you wrote books on va- a vaccine uh, package back in uh, 2017. So you were writing about this, like, you know, the vaccine, the vaccination picture is the book for people that want to check it out. Um, it, it was out published by Penguin Random House in 2017 before the pandemic. Um, did, by the way, did, did, did you see that coming or was that just a, a, a fluke? I mean, did you get lucky writing a book on <laughs> vaccines right before a three-year pandemic hits? Uh, no, I didn't see it coming. But look, anti-vax issues were, have been around for a long time. Like, just think about Wakefield, right? Uh, the Wakefield legacy. And that, you know, that fueled a lot about, of what we were talking about in that book. So Andrew Wakefield, the lie that vaccines connected to are, are connected to autism, you know, no evidence to support that at all. So the so, Jenny McCarthy story, the, the Jenny, Jenny appears in the book, no surprise, right? Um, so that that 
that really fueled a lot of our discussion. And we were doing research ar around that too, you know, how vaccines were represented in the public sphere. And, you know, naive me. So here I am, like I've worked in this area for decades, the pandemic hits. And I remember saying, okay, people, this is what the world looks like without a vaccine. Mm. So I, I thought, it, you know, the pandemic was actually going to nudge anti some of the anti-vaxxers in the opposite direction. Holy cow, was I was I ever wrong, right? Because what happened is we have this massive, the anti-vaxxers view this as an opportunity, and we have this you know, horrible spillover of anti-vax rhetoric that's now impacting not just the COVID vaccine, but the measles vaccine, um, where it's like at an all-time low now. You know, measles kills over 100,000 people a year, mostly kids. So this rhetoric is killing children. And even dogs, people aren't, aren't vaccinating their dogs anymore. Uh, I don't know if you saw that study. No. Again, a colleague of mine uh, did this, this research. In the United States, over 50% of dog owners now are hesitant to vaccinate their dogs. And, this is a, and he, the, the researchers did this because they were exploring that kind of spillover anti-vax rhetoric that came from COVID. And one of the main reasons that people aren't vaccinating their dogs anymore is they're worried about dog autism. I think it was 40% of people are worried about dog autism because so they're not vaccinated, which is remarkable, but really shows you how powerful this rhetoric has been on, on public belief and discourse. Huh? Um, dog autism. I'm just letting that land for a second. And I don't want to, I don't want to sort of like, one of the things I've, I've learned about myself and, and public discourse over the past few years is um, and I talked to a, a counselor about this, a, a brilliant counselor on the show talked about our, our uh, tendency to dehumanize people and to mock people and laugh at people and belittle people and punch down sometimes. And, uh, and, and people, including me and maybe you and probably a lot of people listening to the show have had to make a choice on many occasions how much they're going to dig into something. You know, a friend presents a finding or a study that they've found or a link on Facebook and and all of a sudden believes that they have the inside scoop on why the covid vaccine was rushed or what went into it. All of a sudden we have the one friend that's a, a vaccine expert, the one friend that has reason to believe that all of science is flawed and they're tricking us. And and we've all had to make our own decisions on whether we not we tell that person to give their head a shake or laugh or hear them out or do our own digging and see if it's a valid point, right? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've, we've made those decisions many, many times over the past few years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is a really important point because it's easy to laugh at people who think they're, they're wor that are worried about dog autism, but we're talking about a huge swath of society. You said 50%. Yeah, this is, so we, this is a systemic issue. You know, we can't be pointing our fingers at those individuals. I do think you can point your, your finger at the individuals that are spreading the lies, the Robert F. Kennedy Juniors of the world, you know, the, the Wakefields of the world. You know, I think it's co completely fair to be enraged at those individuals, but I, I think we have to have a degree of empathy for when, whenever we're engaging this. There's been a lot of really interesting research about what, who are more susceptible to, to misinformation and conspiracy theories. And there's a lot going on there. You know? And also, I've fallen for misinformation. Ryan, you've fallen for misinformation. You know, I always make that point whenever I'm talking to the public. Mm -hmm. we, we have to remember that. It's such a chaotic information environment right now. It's getting more and more difficult to tease it out. And so, yeah, 
the bottom line is you have to try to bring a, a degree of empathy to these conversations. I feel like when you when you invoke the name of, of RFK Jr., I'm thinking I haven't heard from that. It feels like we haven't heard from that guy in a while. So I Google him and here it is at the hill dot com. Uh, this was published yesterday. So this is current. Uh, the results of a recent Harvard Caps Harris survey shows that independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. currently leads the pack of 2024 presidential candidates with a high favorability rating. Uh, according to respondents of that, the poll was published on Monday, shared with The Hill, found that 52% of respondents have a favorable opinion of Kennedy. Uh, 27% had an unfavorable opinion. He also had the highest net favorability rating of 25 points. How do you wrap your mind around that? Uh, it, it's just remarkable to me. The, the guy is just, he spews lies. His family's disavowed him. Yeah, his family's disavowed him. And, and it's not like, okay, and, and you know, if we have time, we can get into this. It's not like got he's... got time. <laughs> it's not like he's talking about things that are on the margin, right? You know, I think a lot of people say, oh, Caulfield's talking about misinformation. You know, it's what he says is... Mis I'm talking about stuff that are... It's they're lies, right? It's not like there is it's not like a reasonable perspective on a controversial topic, right? You know, there are things in the world that are that are lies. You know, the world is not flat. You know, the, the Trump's big lie, you know, the, the election wasn't stolen, right? The U.S. government, it's not run by lizard people, right? Those things are just not not true. And we also know that the vaccines do not cause autism, right? And he that's just a straight up lie that he must know is a lie, given the vast amount of research that counters his his rhetoric on this. So you know, it's pretty evil, Ryan. I mean, we know that measles kills children. Measles can have a long term impact on on the children's lives. Right. So this is really evil stuff. So it's you can see I, it's I, I don't pull I don't pull my punches when you when I think of people like him mm -hmm. it, it wasn't uncommon for parents to choose to 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 leave their kids unvaccinated 30 or 40 years ago though right do you think that there was different motivation behind it or do you think it was the same do you think it was skepticism around science what was a friend of mine personally let us know that that he was raised in a house where he was never vaccinated for anything uh i was a little bit surprised but he just that was his normal you only know you're normal yeah, so so the, absolutely that that was also a lot of that. And again, don't know the motivations behind this individual, where they got their their information on, on this, but there was no evidence to to support that that those kinds of decisions. You know, mm -hmm. there may have been other reasons why they they decided to do that. Uh, maybe you know, a, a patient can be immunocompromised, etc. But but uh, a lot of that those. If you look at the research, a lot of those early days concerns were, again, fueled by the Wakefield idea and this idea that where, you know, kids were getting too many vaccines. You know, I talk, we actually talked about that in, in the book um, and there, no evidence to support that concern. Um, Do you think I don't know if like a lot of times people, you know, we see these messaging campaigns and, uh, you know, I saw, I saw one currently uh, a bus station right outside of our studio here at a busy intersection in Edmonton, right downtown. There's a bus stop with a with a new advertisement on it talking about the opioid crisis. Um, and it has positive information that is not untrue, uh, basically says addicted to opioids. You can get help. 
and then it, and then it, it shares a link to a sort of a detox resource, which is good. That's a good thing for a healthcare system to uh, to offer, obviously. But it's also indicative of, of a demonstrable uh, change in approach uh, with a different government on how they're going to manage the opioid crisis. Right? It was the, the Jason Kenney school of thought uh, is not unlike the Danielle Smith school of thought. Many of the the senior cabinet ministers are are the recurring names uh, there that believe that Alberta needs to have better counseling services, detox services, inpatient services, less of a focus on harm reduction. So so we see a, a perspective, like an ideology reflected in government messaging. Do you think that governments needed to do a better job messaging about vaccines? I won't ask if the manufacturers had to do a better job because people wouldn't believe that. If Johnson & Johnson says, take our shot, if Pfizer says, take our pill, people will say, well, of course you're going to say that. So does this fall on health authorities? Did they drop the ball on conveying good information to people to, to quell some of those concerns, do you think? Even Travis Kelsey got, you know, yeah. back for his Pfizer ad, right? He did, yeah, the NFL star, uh, or, or better known as Taylor Swift's boyfriend, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do think, um, you know, and I, I wrote a piece on this, uh, that we need to do a better job on science communication, full stop. Not just about, about vaccines. I think we, we do a terrible job. We, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but those interested in science communication early days uh, in the pandemic in particular, but I think we can make you know, broader strokes on this. Um, better job talking about scientific uncertainty, right? Because there is scientific uncertainty often, right? So I, I, I think what often happens is you err on the side of being a little bit dogmatic, a little bit over certain because you want to give people actionable advice, right? Let's not, let's not make this ambiguous. Let's give people actionable advice. And, and then if you modify that, it looks like you were wrong before. Mm. And I thought you were following the science. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that the science, that when you're talking about you know, a pandemic, you know, climate change, on and on and on, you, you talk about the areas that, where the science is evolving, because science is always evolving. It's not a list of facts, right, Ryan? It's a process. And, uh, and communicate uh, the actionable items and, and make sure people know this could change if the science changes uh, going, going forward. Um, oh, we haven't even, uh, this is so funny. This is our intro, but <laughs> I said, I said to you before we started, we'll lead with Preston Manning's panel. You went, yeah, perfect. So this is the intro. Uh, we've now been talking to professor Tim Caulfield for about 25 minutes. Good, solid intro. So now let's get into it. <laughs> I want to take a look at the, uh, the live chat as well. It's humming, which is the case every time you're on the show. And we sure appreciate that. But, but before we get into this, um, the, the, the findings of this COVID panel, obviously a taxpayer, uh, uh, funded panel that was commissioned by the Daniel Smith government. I want to let you know that these conversations are happening because of Real Talk partners like our friends at California Closets. And uh, this is something I'm going to just show this to you on YouTube. I'll describe it for those of you listening on the podcast. You want to see what sort of a, a game changer it is when you start working with California Closets. Our family has had this experience personally. You look at a space that you're using and you just know for a fact you're not maximizing it. Like, uh, do you have pairs of shoes going all the way up the stairs? Do you have a couple of suit jackets hanging off the Peloton? Do you have the clean laundry folded but not put away because there's simply no space? California Closets wants to help you solve all of those issues, and it all starts with a free design consultation. You can get in touch with them today. They do garages, too. Amazing work there at CaliforniaClosets.ca. We also wanted to, for those of you that are that are dreaming of leading teams and making a real impact in the world, maybe you want an education that could lead to a fulfilling career in many thro uh, uh, wow, geez, thriving and growing. 
industries. Is that what you're looking at? You're at that point in your life where you're going, I'm looking to make a game plan for the next 25, 30 years. What does that look like? Nate's J.R. Shaw School of Business could very well be your answer. They're one of Canada's leading polytechnic business educators, experts in harnessing inner talent, building skills, feeding curiosity. Your future will be brighter because of their immersive style of learning and deep relationships with industry. Graduate with the in-demand skills that future employers are looking for. Get down to business today with Nate's J.R. Shaw School of Business at nate.ca slash business. And a quick mention, a shout out to our friends at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. You know that our dogs have benefited health-wise and otherwise from eating quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. Well, I wanted to let you know for the month of November, for Real Talkers only, they've got the beef and chicken raw pet food, the blend. They've got it right now on sale, $10 off every 40-pound box. And here's the beautiful part about it. It's suitable for both dogs and and cats prepared using Alberta-raised chicken and beef sourced from human-grade facilities. Say goodbye to synthetic vitamins and minerals that are found in a lot of the kibble brands. This blend uses a high variety of organ meat more than any of the other raw food brands in Alberta. Now, why is that a big deal? Because organ meat is considered nature's multivitamins for your pets. If you want to take advantage of that offer, just go to their website, granddog.ca. Remember, the promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first-time order delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. That's Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. We've all been there, or most of us have anyway. We're sending a text message. We're sending an email, a DM, and you realize you've sent it to the wrong person. Or maybe on a reply all, you included somebody that wasn't supposed to be there. I have to assume that's what happened earlier this week with Preston Manning, who sent out an email to his CPC friends, his Conservative Party of Canada friends, saying, I hope all is well with you. But but here's the thing, to cut to the chase, George Chahal is on there, the Liberal Member of Parliament. And so this is where it gets interesting, and that's how we have access to this private email. Uh, George reads, along with everybody else that Preston writes, as you may know, for the last year, I've been chairing this panel for Alberta's Premier Smith to examine legislation authorizing the orders and regulation where the government, respond, uh, the government of Alberta responded to COVID-19. Uh, he says the Alberta government, to its credit, the only Canadian government to have commissioned such an investigation. He announces to these email recipients that the panel report is now complete, has been submitted to the premier and is being released. He says, please note a heads up. The news release has also been sent to Pierre, obviously Mr. Poliev. He says, if the response of the liberal NDP coalition to the COVID crisis should become an election issue in 2024, interesting, an election in 2024, not so sure about that. He says there may be some material in this report that could be used by the Conservatives to say what should have been done to cope with the COVID crisis and future emergencies. He goes on, quote, some of its content may also be useful in attacking the record of the Liberal NDP coalition in the area. He goes on and says there's a special note to Edmonton area Conservative MPs, the area of the province where the Premier and the United Conservatives need extra support for the report and politically goes on Preston Manning in general it seems to me there would be real merit in developing a closer practical relationship here in Alberta between the UCP and the CPC what does this have to do with managing COVID 
Nothing, of course, is the obvious answer. He goes on to say, they need your support for some of their initiatives, like promoting and implementing the recommendations of this report. They could use your active support for re-election in 2024. I'm wondering if maybe a small task force of interested conservative MPs, UCP folks could be put together to jointly pursue this objective. He says, best to all of you, call me if you have any questions. Preston Manning and leaves his personal phone number there, which is, of course, blacked out. So, so much for a nonpartisan report endeavoring to figure out best practices for managing pandemic. This was politically motivated and is being politically weaponized, and you get it straight from the horse's mouth. Nobody's surprised. Yeah, wow, though, wow. I mean, it just confirms what we all knew. We all knew this. Uh, and also, you know, given the tone of the report, the recommendations in the report, um, it makes it even more more frustrating yeah so i want to get into some of the recommendations with you on like as mentioned obviously you're a professor of health law of science policy um but first i want to also note that our friends cheryl oates and erica baroudis touched on this uh in their new podcast the discourse it comes out every friday Uh, you can subscribe on youtube or wherever you get your podcast you'll find those links in the show notes for this episode of real talk um erica of course former principal secretary for danielle smith Cheryl, former director of communications for then premier Rachel Notley. And Cheryl took aim at this report in their most recent episode, which is out just a couple of days ago. Here's a snippet. So the government did this report led by former Reform Party leader Preston Manning. Like you said, 90 recommendations coming out of this. Most of this is fluffier stuff or political cover for what I think the top lines of what this panel is recommending is, is, which is, Uh, medical professionals should not have ultimate authority during a public health emergency, and that the government will now consider in its decision-making alternative scientific narratives, which that term in itself just makes me laugh. Um, A very diplomatic way to say that ideology will come before evidence and before science um, when governments have to make decisions like they did during COVID-19. I mean, keeping in mind that Daniel Smith was elected as leader of the UCP on a promise not to bring back mandates, not to bring back lockdowns. She now does have a responsibility to those who elected her to fulfill that mandate, which, you know, I'm saying is the UCP, not the people of Alberta, um, to fulfill that mandate and bring forward a report like this. You know, doing this broader piece like you've talked about, um, I think Albertans should be worried because what this report does is concentrate all of that power all of that decision-making in a public health emergency with a politician. And Daniel Smith is not a doctor. That was Cheryl Oates in the most recent episode of The Discourse. I agree with all the above. I agree with all the above. I mean, I, the, the report is so, so frustrating, Ryan. You know, I tried to go into it with an open mind. Yeah, look, I have my own biases and my own preconceived notions. But when it dropped, I have to say I was, I was more... I was surprised how how incredibly disconnected from the evidence, from the existing science it actually was, and how clearly this was about about ideology. Um, look, uh, do we need to learn from how we handled the pandemic? Of course, we can do better. Were mistakes made? Absolutely. It was a it was a crisis. It was a pandemic. But I I think we can't forget that. Hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of people died as a result of the pandemic. And the evidence tells us that the measures that were used 
worked. They saved lives. Could they be more targeted? Probably. Could, you know, could we learn from what kind of measures are, would be, are going to be less invasive in the future? Perhaps. We've got to learn all that. I'm, everyone agrees. I've never met someone who doesn't agree that we should learn from the past. But all of that seems to be completely ignored in the report. The main message, I totally agree, is less science. Let's have less science. Let's have less expertise. Let's have more ideology during the next pandemic. And let's have, and this is you know, from my own area, let's have more tolerance for bunk, for, for, for you know, pseudoscience. We, we need to tolerate pseudoscience more. And I think it's really, really important. This, there's this fake narrative in this report. Somehow, these alternative approaches were ignored. They weren't ignored. They weren't ignored at all. In fact, our own research has shown that these alternative views, and, and let's not forget, what they're talking about here is, dude, we need the vaccines. Uh, did, did ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, that's what they're talking Herd about. Herd immunity. Herd immunity, right? Uh, the Great Barrington. Those, in fact, we did a study on that exact, uh, exact topic, um, and we found that uh, it wasn't. It wasn't ignored. It was overrepresented in the public sphere, right? And and I think it's really important to recognize that these these views did not accord with the scientific uh, consensus, and 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 not they weren't they weren't ignored. In fact, they were studied. We used scientific method to look at those, and they were shown to be not effective, or or the science didn't su support the approach. They weren't ignored at all. They were overrepresented in the public sphere. And, and I think this is really important, they were studied and then dismissed, right? And, and what he seems to be proposing is that not only do we consider these fringe views, but when these fringe views are shown to be wrong, we still consider them. We still consider them, right? So it's because of that, it really is an anti-science approach. It's not, only, it's not only this idea that we shouldn't just look at science. I think there's a line in there where we're supposed to look at non-scientific approaches when we're doing an evidence-based review. It's not just that. It's anti-science. And that's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking and nonsensical. One of the things that's kind of jumping out at me that if you, if you ask kind of just the average person, the layperson on the street, what they're taking away from the Manning report, I think that one of them, one of the key ones or the main ones is that politicians should be calling the shots in a health emergency, not health professionals. And I would point out that that kind of is the way that it was. Like everybody will remember in Alberta, I mean, I'll reference Alberta here. I recognize we have audience elsewhere. We could talk about BC or Ontario or elsewhere. But in Alberta, Dr. Dina Hinshaw was providing advice and counsel to the government. But at the end of the day, it was the health minister, Tyler Shandro, and the premier, Jason Kenney, that were calling the shots. That was not not the case, right? That's right. And we have a court decision that that basically confirms that. And because of that, they said, you know, these decisions weren't weren't valid. Um and what the Manning group is trying to do is, is to institutionalize that approach, right? So, so are you saying that that approach works? So you're not critical of that approach, and which, it's, which seems to run counter, to, you know, paradoxically what, what they're complaining about in this report. Uh, so, you, you know, you can't have it both, both ways. And, and of course, this idea of having, you know, ideology rule public health decisions is is bizarre we're talking about people's lives and that doesn't really come up in this report at all we're talking about children we're talking about human beings dying and you don't really see that uh in the report 
at all. I recommend that people subscribe to uh, Professor Lisa Young's uh, newsletter. She's a political science prof out of the University of Calgary. Uh, it's called What Now? An Alberta Politics Newsletter. Uh, her most recent one, which uh, came out just on the 17th of November, she admits, uh, I've struggled to write something about the Manning Report. Um, Johnny, we can break protocol and you can show my inbox on the screen if you want. <laughs> we have a rule on the show. We don't show my email inbox because you never know what's going to be in there. But, but Lisa's uh, piece is really good. Constructive and Democratic Discourse, it reads. Um, and she says that she's, she's really wanted to have an open mind, how democracy requires empathy, a genuine attempt to see things through the eyes of fellow citizens who don't share one's own experience and perspective. And so she goes on and she's taking us into her thought process as she's analyzing this report. Um, she says, but, but if that's the bar, multiple perspectives seeking to understand uh, for democratic discourse, the Manning report fails abysmally. She says nowhere in the report is sympathy expressed for the thousands of Albertans who've died of COVID or those who mourn them. Nowhere in the report do we read about the experiences of healthcare workers, teachers, frontline workers disabled by long COVID. Those Albertans don't even warrant a mention. In the 114-page report, the only Albertans deserving of empathy or public policy response, according to the report, are those who felt their freedoms were unduly restricted. A search for the words dead, deaths, and fatalities yields six mentions. A search for the word freedom finds 262. Had the Manning panel, writes Dr. Young, bothered to look at any of the publicly available survey data, it would have found that those who felt restrictions were too stringent were in the minority. Unfortunately, there was a remarkable lack of curiosity and empathy in the panel's approach. That from Dr. Lisa Young. Oh, what a great piece and stuff we've already talked about about here today. And, and the other thing that's missing in there, you know, there have been studies a, as reference that show that Canadians want, not surprisingly, they want their public health policy to be informed by science that, you know, if you go out and ask people, that's what they want. You know, could we do a better job communicate? You know, if, if you're struggling to find some kind of constructive thing to say about the report is the recommendation that we do a better job communicating about public health measures. And I think that's a, you know, a reasonable conclusion that many other people have made also. Uh, but if you ask Canadians, most Canadians um, and most Albertans, they want their public health uh, decisions to be informed by by science and the best evidence. Can you believe that we even say some of these things I, out loud? I know, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> like what you just said, if you ask most people, they want their public health decisions guided by science. Yeah, but you have to say it out loud these days. Yeah, it, it's we're in this bizarre dark age, right? Where, you know, one of the things I think is so funny is, is we're getting a little esoteric here, but, okay. but, but, you know, it's this postmodern view of the world, right? You know, that all knowledge is relative, that there's no right answers. And what I find so ironic is that's kind of a hard left idea, right? You know, Foucault and, you know, Derrida, all these things that, that, you know, in the past, the right thought was, you know, how can you talk this way? You know, reality is here. And, and now we have, you know, the, you know, Trump and, and the alt-right embracing, Postmodernism. Where do we live? <laughs> What's going on? Do you think Trump's going to win the oh next my election? God. I don't even. It, I, just you saying that, I got like this feeling in my stomach. Which I, means you probably deep down I, feel like the answer I don't is know yes. How, yeah, I think he's going to win. Yeah, and, I do and, too. and, and uh, you know, RFK Jr. is an interesting part of this story, right? Because it, it, it's going to 
it might come down to where does RFK Jr. steal votes? Yeah. Right? Does he steal it from Trump, which is possible, right? Or, or does he steal it from Biden? It might, it might, can you believe that this is the world we live in? That yeah. the leader of the United States of America is going to be determined by an anti-vaxxer? Yeah, I, I, I saw somebody tweet yesterday, wish I could credit them. So, a pundit out of the state said, we deserve better than Trump versus Biden. Yeah. And I agree with that sentiment. Um, I think that if we perceive or if we see that Trump perceives RFK Jr. to be stealing his votes, he will turn on him fast. Uh, so it'll be it'll be interesting to watch if and when that happens. Um, let's get to this. It seems like, you know, to wrap and we appreciate your time. Uh, we've kept you longer than we asked for, but I'm assuming you're in for it. You yeah, haven't, absolutely. You haven't been yeah. eyeing up the door yet. Um, but that that whole idea of, uh, as, as Dr. Young writes, as you've been talking about, of considering different perspectives, my notes earlier today about dehumanizing people and wanting to hear people out in good faith, but also having a line where we go, listen, anything past this is bullshit, quite frankly, and, and I'm going to call a spade a spade. Uh, you've written a piece recently. Uh, people can check it out, healthydebate.ca. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, we see two people, stickmen. Did you draw these, by the way? I did <laughs> No, truth, <laughs> truth and conspiracy on a seesaw. Uh, and you asked, uh, is both sidesism killing us and why scientific consensus matters? Uh, it, it is killing us. It is killing us. And what I mean by that is, you know, scientific consensus matters. And when you rate, when you say the scientific consensus, you might even, and you might even get some comments on this. People say, oh, he's talking about, you know, groupthink or, you know, this ridiculously conservative view of in silencing and censorship of the other side. That's not it at all, right? This is how scientific, you know, science works. You know, people get, when people get on a plane, you know, they, they want that plane to be ha constructed based on scientific consensus. When they go over a bridge, they don't want to go over a bridge that was built, you know, an alternative view of physics, right? So <laughs> in most aspects of our lives, we completely accept that there's something called the scientific consensus. But when a topic becomes polarized, like vaccines, like climate change, like GMOs, all of a sudden there's these fringe views that deserve to be given more weight than the science dictates that they should. And that's both sides. Isn't we think of false balance? We often think about it in the context of, of of the media, where they you know they give one side too much credit than it, it deserves. But what's happening now is social media and public discourse is making false balance the norm. And we really need to to talk about what the scientific consensus actually says. And let me just give you one study that emphasizes how important this is. So there was a study that was done in Europe, and they asked about vaccines, about the COVID vaccines. 90% of the people they surveyed, 90%, Ryan, thought that the, the clinicians and the experts were divided on the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. 90% thought that clinicians and experts are divided on the safety and e efficacy of the COVID vaccines, which is just not true at all, right? Uh, and when you tell people what the actual scientific consensus is, they do change their mind. Not everyone, but you move the needle. Uh, uh, colleagues of mine did a survey, a study in, in U, uh, uh, colleagues from UBC in BC, uh, and they asked 135 experts, so infectious disease experts, are, is the COVID vaccine safe and effective? 99% said it was, right? Safe and effective, we, uh, and no worries with That's it. more than the dentists that recommend Colgate. <laughs> but if, you, if we went out on the street and asked Canadians, they wouldn't believe that. Mm. They, they would think, oh, people are, you know, one group thinks this. They're that, split. They're split. It's just not the case at all, right? And it's really important to recognize scientific consensus does evolve. And when those fringe views emerge, people go, what about Galileo? What about plate tectonics? And we used to think stress cause ulcers, right? Those fringe views are put out there. They're, and by the way, all of those ideas were put out in a scientific forum 
and then tested using science. And then it slowly became the scientific. They didn't go on, you know, a podcast and rant. <laughs> they didn't go on a cable news show and rant. They didn't go on social media and rant. They went to the laboratory and they tested their fringe ideas to get convincing evidence to show. And they didn't, and they didn't ignore the science that told them that they were wrong, right? They were scientists. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. Fringe views are elevated uh, to the point where they've become sort of dogma and we have... Uh, reports coming from Alberta that valorize those <laughs> those positions. Well, and this, I mean, this is is what we'll wrap with today is just talking about. You want to talk about faith and trust and institutions? Let's let's wrap by by us looking in a mirror, by me looking in a mirror, but by this entity, a, a talk show, and and then the more serious journalists, the people that are writing long form, uh, the people that are writing in magazines and publishing those reports and interviewing the experts tirelessly, and and people will say and pick an issue. I'm not going to drag you into Israel and Hamas. Um, you know, people. People are very critical of our coverage, which is is fine. Other people are appreciative of it, and we're we're going to get to a few emails on that today. Um, you know, where is the perspective on 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 Palestine? Where is the perspective on a ceasefire? Where is the, the inadequate perspective or coverage of what it's like to be a Jew in Canada right now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And and quite frankly, we could do five talk shows a week on just that. Uh, during COVID, it was where is the perspective if if you're talking a lot about the lockdowns and there really really weren't lockdowns, but let's say the measure. Uh, if you're talking about the measures, where is the story of the small business owner that had to close up shop? Where is the story of the person that had a brain aneurysm after they got, or a heart thing, you know, a heart incident after they got the vaccine? You're not telling, you know, you're censoring, you're suppressing those stories. You can't be trusted. We've heard it so many times. And I think that, to state the obvious, that's the root of a lot of the erosion of trust when it comes to that fourth estate, to the media. Well, I, I do think we need to listen. And, you know, there's been uh, people have argued that we need, need to we the, the, the media needs to make editorial decisions about how they cover things to, to sort of represent that. But at the same time, Ryan, we have to be careful not to feed the false balance right by by sort of highlighting those stories in a way that makes it sound like, OK, the scientific consensus isn't true because of this story, because we know that anecdotes testimonials can have an outsized impact on on perceptions. I mean, we've done some of that work at our institute. A lot of studies have, have shown that, but absolutely. The other thing I, I think we need to do is be more transparent about how media works. We have to talk about journalistic standards and, and how those play out. Um, and we also have to, I think, talk about how science is funded, researched, and published so people have, a, you know, appreciate more. Uh, so, they, so not only is the science there, it's trustworthy science, and everyone understands where, where it's coming from. Do you feel, I would make you a little bit uncomfortable for a second, or maybe not. Uh, I don't know if anything does. <laughs> uh, one of the loudest criticisms, uh, criticisms I see aimed at you is that you're on the take. Oh my God! People it, it, have seen stories about the funding you've received for your studies, the fundings that your groups have received. You know these panels of, of researchers that you work with, and and essentially the implication is, of course, you're going to say all this, Professor Caulfield. They're padding your pockets to do so. Yeah, it, it's the, lie after lie after lie is said about me and my team, right? It's, and it's really frustrating. I have never received industry funding for any of my research, ever. Ryan. Wow. Ever in 30 years. And, and I'm not necessarily saying receiving industry funding allow my colleagues to you know, partner with industry to do research. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but I know the kind of work that I do. So it's kind of, it is sometimes I do get upset about that, that I've actually really tried to shield my work from industry funding, right? So I've never received industry funding for my work. I have never personally received a dime 
to say a particular thing. Ever. I've never seen you respond with ever. that publicly. Do you? Do, do, is, are you disinterested? I, in... I have responded on. I've done it on social Maybe media, you of course, it. And, and of course they say, "Oh, that, that's lies." And, and I, you know, I disclose where I get all of my money. Uh, you know, the most corporate things I do is I, I work. Uh, you know, I have a, a commercial pub, a publisher, and I work with you know a commercial media company, and yeah. you know, but that's outside my my research, and they're not getting funded by big pharma, so it's a complete lie. And the other thing I think is really important is they often say. I probably once a day someone will take an Edmonton Journal a story of me and I received three hundred thousand dollars to do misinformation research. I wasn't paid by Trudeau to to spread his narrative. I was I went through peer review. I competed with other researchers across Canada. Very low acceptance rate. It's an independent peer review committee. Um, they make a determination independent from the government who gets funding, and I go and do research. I don't get the money. They all think it went to my personal bank account. Sure. The University of Alberta holds the money. Uh, there's this incredible accounting that we need to do. Ryan, I want to be careful here because I don't want to get this, the CHR mad at me. It's such a hassle that it's almost not worth it. And I share the money with three institutions, University of Regina, University of Calgary, and our team. And I use the money to pay for trainees, right? To pay for trainees to do the research so they can build their career. And it's held up as if I've been bought out by by big pharma or by the Trudeau government. And it's, it is maddening. You can tell they, I, I don't normally get. <laughs> well, you're a little passionate, but, <laughs> but I, I it's think so you can get more it's mad lie, than that. It's a lie, lie, lie. Yeah. And, well, when, when basically when, when, you know, I've, I've got a buddy, a shout out to red bag, he'll, he'll get in anybody's face and he's doing it jovially and for yeah. fun, but he'll say, you questioning my character, kid, you questioning <laughs> my character. People don't like to have their character questioned. And that includes you. Uh, yeah, you know they go after my you know integrity, um, and but not just me, my my team, right? You know because I have uh, emerging uh, scholars who are way smarter than I am working with me, and you know it, it impacts them too, and and it's it is maddening, especially when you've tried so hard, so hard to to walk the a path that avoids these this exact discourse i can't tell you how much i enjoy chatting with you and uh like just your your, your depth of understanding of, of not just the subject matter uh you know of health law and science policy uh which is what you teach obviously at the u of a uh but also just your understanding of people and how we're wired and how we think and how we behave uh, i appreciate it uh professor tim caulfield is the host of a user's guide to cheating death you can find that online of course i was so proud to see you uh, on netflix with that he's the author of several best-selling books including relax a user's guide to the age of anxiety the science of celebrity is gwyneth paltrow wrong about everything and the vaccination picture uh, do you have the new book named yet or i do i think it's going to be called um the uh uncertainty uh, illusion or the, the certainty I should make get my, I should get my own uh, the well, certainty illusion we're putting you on the spot so you didn't uh, the, know you're going to be answering the certainty that. illusion yeah. uh, and it explores uh, how our information ecosystem is rigged to lie to us I can't wait to read it I uh, can't wait to have you back to talk about it thanks, thanks for doing so this R really enjoyed it Ryan you bet that's Professor Timothy Caulfield you can follow him on Twitter at Caulfield Tim let us know what you thought about this interview to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, this was presented by Real Talk partners like our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. 
They want to let you know right now that their ever-expanding team is in search of talented individuals to help Western Canada remain a leader on the renewable energy front. Make sure you take that mug with you, Prof. All right, there you go. Happy to know that'll be with you in your office. Uh, Kubi, right now, we love making these announcements for partners of ours. They're seeking a new horizon in your electrical career. I feel like we're maybe speaking to one person in particular that's just, they love being a sparky, but they're looking for a new challenge. Well, join Kubi and make an impact as a solar installer. Guarantee your skills will be cherished, and they're going to provide you with comprehensive solar training to make sure that there's a seamless shift. So many members of their team, for example, have come out of oil and gas. They're finding new opportunities in the green field. Get ready to master solar system installations and shine with Kubi Renewable Energy. Check out the careers link at kubienergy.ca. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you before you know it, it's going to be the 1st of December. And of course, that means another 15% off promotion at all 16 of their locations. That's coming up next Friday. Next Friday, 15% of all grocery purchases of $75 or more. Plus, seniors discount days, 10% off, different days for different locations. So check out their website at Friesen.com. And for a limited time, they've got mince meat pie available. Get ready for the holidays at Friesen Brothers, Alberta Grown and Alberta Owned. Hey, if you're planning on hosting something special this next summer, you're going, are you serious, Jespo? We're not even through the holidays. I haven't even figured out what we're doing for New Year's Eve yet. All I'm saying is that if you're going to have an anniversary party, a graduation celebration, maybe an engagement party, whatever it is in your backyard, and you know you want to spruce it up a little bit, you want to bring that space to life, now is the time to make contact with Eden Landscaping. They're a full-service, custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. I've worked with them personally. My wife, Carrie, and I, you can check out her Instagram reels at Carrie Skelton if you want to see our backyard reveal. I can tell you this, the planning process is so much fun because you've got the big ideas. You don't have to figure out how to make them happen. That's what Eden does. That's part of the beauty of working with them. You can learn more at landscapeedmonton.ca. And you also want to mention our friends at Complete Care Restoration. You know, they're busy right now. Of course, helping people get back on their feet. Wildfire season was, man, they had all hands on deck across the province here, making sure that people's homes and businesses are built back to how they were before as soon as possible. But the team at Complete Care Restoration are also experts in all construction and renovation. So whether that's a developed basement, whether that's an overhauled kitchen, or maybe it's converting office space into condos, Complete Care does it with talented professionals that are certified for the specific areas that they specialize in. You can learn more about how they provide above-the-norm levels of customer service by checking them out online at completecarerestoration.ca. Interesting note from Ken here on the chat. I saw he wonders, will the Manning report, that COVID report, lead to health workers being allowed to work uh, in children's hospitals like the Stollery or cancer centers like the Cross uh, or the Tom Baker down in Calgary without vaccinations for measles, hepatitis, etc.? He says, I sure hope not. Uh, of course, uh, Ken's alluding to the fact that these would be uh, nurses and doctors working around immunocompromised people, which could be really interesting. Uh, we also uh, are grateful. I just noticed that Ken also hit us up in the super chat with a $5 contribution to our beer fund, which we sure appreciate. Ken, Ken he says, uh, thanks for lunch. Great job as usual. Thanks for lunch, Ken. He <laughs> says, uh, Jesper, he says, you've got the trolls humming, which is a sure sign 
of success. Yeah, that might be Caulfield as well. I'm, I'm not joking. Like when that guy yeah. gets on Twitter, I just go, I don't, I mean, I thought I had it bad every <laughs> once in a while. You feel a little bit, you know, kind of like you're, you're being piled on. And, and then I look at what he deals with and I go, this is nothing. We're, we're, we're in like the Pollyanna state right now compared to him. Well, he's got a lot of passion. He's got a lot of conviction, right? So he's not just like delivering information. So I can see how people want to attack him, but he's very intelligent. He's very, you know, whenever we're on here, the vaccine thing always comes up. And mm -hmm. it's it's so funny because, I mean, I feel like we're going back to a year and a half ago. We talked about this on every show, but, you know, I have people. I saw someone this week who unfollowed me. And it wasn't, I didn't do anything. And then I went, I was like, well, why'd this person unfollow me? And then I went and checked some of their stories. And, you know, they're, they're down these rabbit holes of, of like, it's not just vaccines anymore. These, these same people are like talking about chemtrails and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is just so far off. It's crazy. But mm. yeah, every time we talk about vaccines, I just, I just point to like real actual studies, but then people who want to argue about that, they don't. Like even in the chat today, we had some people saying, you know, research is funded by universities. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, so is everything it is. else like, what, I mean, do you, if, if, what do you mean well and also like if so if we're going to say like research is i mean this just feels like such an obvious thing to say but if a research is funded uh, and scientists are funded uh, by either post-secondary institutions or government or industry which which can be a gray area of right of course like, people will but how always, else do we get it but, done well how and and, and that's <laughs> like, a, a lot of the reason why research isn't getting done in some areas mm -hmm. like an example might be and Gosh, if Caulfield was still in here, he might raise his eyebrows. He'd hit his hairline when I start talking about when you don't want to talk about alternative health therapies. And, for example, how cannabinoids, like how the cannabis plant could be integrated into people's health. There's not a lot of, of research course. on that. Yeah. And why is there not a lot of research on that? Because the industry itself can't afford or won't afford the research. And because Big Pharma has no motivation to do so at this point. So mm -hmm. that's like one example. But let me ask you this. If you're cynical about the findings of research that is funded then why would you not be cynical uh, around the decisions of political parties that are also funded <laughs> that are funded by way who do you think is funding political parties and what do you think and there's by the way there's nothing wrong with making a, a donation or a contribution to your no. to your political party that's fine but let's put all the cards on the table but let's politicians have an agenda period of course Whereas research you're just trying to figure things out it's i don't i don't get where people think where do we get the money for research where should we get it from should we just like it it costs millions of dollars to do this i mean the last research we did on kids and vaccines and autism 660,000 kids they researched for 11 years how much do you think that costs huh. and they still didn't like the findings they still don't believe the findings so i mean what's the point even yeah um you can let us know. I know there's a lot of you just commenting on, on how you'd love to hear Professor Caulfield on the show more frequently, uh, which I think would be great. Um, obviously, Bro, he's, he's busy. He's, he's on Netflix. A, he, he's on like. Netflix. He's writing books all the time. <laughs> I don't know when he does it, but uh, but we sure do. We usually, you know, we typically have one uh, a couple times a year, maybe a few times a year. Um, we did mention that we hear from a bunch of you, obviously, and I'm not reading all the emails we've received, but I've got a few chosen here from different perspectives um, about our coverage of certain issues. I, I got an email from a guy the other day. Uh, I'm not going to show it on my screen. I'm still chewing on it but but do you remember we were talking about about trans healthcare in a particular yeah. uh, a new clinic that's coming to Alberta to support people that require that that have you know more specific requirements or needs or there's deficiencies system-wide mm -hmm. there are systemic deficiencies in healthcare for trans Canadians and we had that conversation uh, somebody wrote in to say uh, in, in in a rather thoughtful way 
that they felt like our conversation there was one-sided, that we hadn't represented the other side of the coin, the other perspective, how they, how in their estimation, that approach to healthcare provision could be harmful. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. You're, you're going to say, was that person trans? And if that person isn't trans, then take that email for what it's worth. Others of you will say, well, if you believe it to be uh, an incorrect or a, a, an argument, uh, you know, mired in fallacy, then what do we have to lose by hashing it out or digging into it or putting it through a purity test, so to speak? We get emails like this all the time from people that, that recognize in their own interpretation, they feel like we're not doing a good enough job of telling the full story. We welcome that criticism. It doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with it, but we want you to know that we do consider what you send to us, that we do our best to read every single email and we try to respond to as many as we can. Like this one from Michael. Michael wrote in on Saturday, the subject line, Israel Hamas. He says, I just want to say it out loud. Uh, after hearing from Tasha Carradin on Real Talk, Bruce Arthur, he says more, please, and others whose names I'm forgetting, he says Allegra Pacheco on the 2nd of November has to have had the most Pollyanna take on calling for an Israeli ceasefire. What an absolutely absurd fantasy, says Michael. I don't want any more loss of life on either side. And this is arguably the messiest, most complex situation in history. But to say that one side should stop shooting when they have the upper hand with hostages on the other side, it was ridiculous and it was ignorant. Michael says, by the way, I love that you take off the filter once in a while, like at the end of your Seeking Solutions episode, and just let some of your most foolish critics really have it. That from Michael. That was the part where I said I'm being a little bit unprofessional right mm -hmm. now. I got a text from a guy that said, be more, be more unprofessional more often. Uh, this one from Kyle, who says, Israel Hamas has made me lose faith in my generation. Uh, Ryan, is Israel uh, and Hamas, this war continues to rage. Supporters of both sides are becoming even more radicalized. As most conflicts involving Israel and Palestine do, we have seen the divide on the political and Western versus anti-Western spectrums. I'm generally pro-Israel, says Kyle, which puts me at odds with those my age, the 18 to 25 demographic. But to my horror... I see Osama bin Laden's letter to America trending on TikTok, Twitter, and Twitch for all the wrong reasons. Millions of people supporting and parroting these anti-American and de facto anti-Canadian lines, stating how Israel is just like America and deserved October 7th like America deserved 9-11. Now, I understand that people my age were barely alive, if at all, during 9-11 and only saw the war on terror, but to be spouting 2002 Al-Qaeda propaganda... Al-Qaeda, on why American values need to be destroyed is beyond disheartening. I feel that people will take the anti-American side without knowing what they're supporting, especially with the martyring of bin Laden in this case. He says, also, I know how much you support Paula Simons. I don't know if I support Paula. I mean, she's a pal. He says, but I take real objection to her statement that Muslims and Jewish people have a common enemy in the right and that, and that they could coexist against that common enemy. He says, I would say, look at which political groups are landing where with this war. The NDP have had to expel members for supporting Hamas. I think he's talking about Sarah Jama in Ontario. He says, we have communists for Hamas rallies in Edmonton and at the NDP convention, a policy to dismantle Israel. And then Kyle leaves us some suggestions for guests. He says, here's a middle of the road one. And then he says, but if you're really looking for unhinged, he gives us another suggestion. We never deliberately reach out to find an unhinged guest, but every once in a while they land in our lap. And this one from Jenny, who says, Ryan, 
A lot has been said about me over the course of my life, but one thing I've never been accused of is keeping my mouth shut (laughs) for some strange reason. It's weird. In all seriousness, though, I love a good, messy conversation as long as it's in good faith. But lately, I feel like I don't have the energy for it, especially when it comes to talking about Israel, uh, precisely because I find good faith so utterly lacking. She says, I'm a Jew, so all the free Palestine toddlers can go ahead and totally disregard me. But she says, look, there's a lot of good activism going on right now, and not a speck of it is coming from that crowd. Jews constantly have to reassure everyone and their damn dog that, yes, we totally agree that the Israeli government is evil and that the IDF is even worse. And no, 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 no. We totally want peace with Palestine. And how dare we want a homeland because the world is totally safe for us. Uh, Meanwhile, Palestinians might as well tattoo on their foreheads that, yes, they agree that Hamas are terrorists and the October 7th massacre was most definitely a very bad thing. And Israel totally has a right to exist, all to appease the little feelings of a bunch of gaping flower scented assholes who have a right to their opinions. And it's exhausting, Jenny says. So in that light, may I just send out immense gratitude. For the audience members I see in the comments, on YouTube, on Twitter, wading into those ugly conversations. I love to see it. It's so easy to feel isolated and to feel othered right now. And the reminder that there are people out there who acknowledge complexity, who understand that any number of contradictory things can all be true at the same time, and who can have plain, sensible conversations without diving headlong into the pig wallow is an incredibly welcome one. It makes me want to invite all of you over for Shabbat dinner. Thank you, friends. You warm my wee Jewish heart. That from Real Talker Jenny, who sent us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We welcome those emails, and when we get good ones in our mailbag, when it starts to fill up, we set aside time on our shows to make sure we get to those. We sure appreciate them. Thanks to everybody that took part in the conversation today. What can you do now to make sure that more people hear Professor Caulfield's important message? You can do simple things like liking the episode on YouTube, like sharing the podcast episode with friends of yours, and of course, by hitting subscribe on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on Wednesday's episode, that's tomorrow on Real Talk, we're going to get into a study on that Alberta pension plan idea. You'll never believe where it lands, but it says it may not actually be great for Alberta. Seth Klein's going to join us on Thursday to talk about plastics and the Supreme Court and the car tax and we're working on some other great stuff that we know is going to get that conversation started but that doesn't happen without you so we say thank you real talk is hosted by ryan jesperson executive producer josh dunford technical producer john hicks general manager katie cook chivers Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.